Hey, what's up? It's Frank here from Data Driven. I originally recorded this interview with Josh uh, as part of my day job at Red Hat and to talk about how the containerization of storage has really revolutionized a lot of related industries. But the conversation, I thought, would be a benefit to you, the data-driven listeners. So I decided to share it here. Hi, my name is Frank Lavinia. I'm the global uh, GTM sales lead for data services here at Red Hat. And with me today is Joshua Blumert, the or Josh, and he's the worldwide technical sales leader for IBM Storage Fusion. And he's going to talk to us all about storage in the Red Hat slash IBM world. Welcome to the show, Josh. Uh, Thank you. I understand you have a, some cool demos for us. Yes, they do. So, yeah, I wanted to talk about, so since um, the beginning of this year, which is just coming, which just came up, um, we have brought the Red Hat portfolio over into IBM. And um, with that saying that is I wanted to kind of explain what we're doing as far as offering uh, the Red Hat storage offerings now as part of IBM's storage offerings. And what I'm focused on is uh, providing storage for containerized environments, something that Red Hat's been doing for a while now and something that uh, we've been doing, uh, but now we have the benefit of using the offerings from, from Red Hat as part of our portfolio. If that makes sense. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. This is great because I am but a humble data scientist, uh, I, uh, which is funny because data scientists are, are not really that humble. Uh, right. But, uh, you know, this whole containerized world is still something that's relatively new to me. Uh, in my background, I, I tend to focus on um, on the Python and, and the, the uh, algorithms and whatnot. So kind of the infrastructure side of things is relatively new to me. I've done some data engineering, but that's mostly in, in the context of cloud offerings and um, kind of SQL transforms ELT. So this is going to be a really good uh, lesson for me to learn too, and uh, hopefully for our audience as well. Well, that's cool because I've been, I'm probably the other side of the coin from you. I've always been kind of a, uh, a Linux and infrastructure type person. So my career has been spent worrying about providing the foundation so that you could do your job. <laughs> well, awesome, I awesome. I think this will be a great uh, learning experience for both of us. Right. So, um, and you talk about containers as being a brave new world, and I'm, I'm sure most, many of our views may know this, but, you know, I just look at this as the next great progression that we've done in the, um, in the computing world. You know, we started with um, operating systems that were loaded directly on bare metal, and we, we did a lot with that. And then this major revolution came where we started doing virtualization. And what that did for us was we took that OS that was running on a physical server and we packaged it up and we made it portable and we made it easy to deploy and we didn't weren't tied to the hardware anymore. And that was super cool. And uh, that allowed us to run our applications and not have to worry about the physical layer because we were just running on this virtualized layer. It did have one thing that it didn't fix, which was you were still carrying an entire operating system around with you. So you were running your application, but you had to have a full OS. So that VM was pretty heavy, um, something to point out. And then we said, oh, well, 
we can just have the application. What does an application need to run? Well, it really needs is the libraries that support it, and that's it. So if we can just provide that application, the libraries it needs, and then it's gonna be a lot smaller in form factor. And so what went from you know gigabytes of utilization became something really compact because we just had that application and pretty much just the code to run that application. And we kind of came up with a new way of, of virtualizing our environments. So that was a kind of a cool shift. And I it, think, you know, people were really embracing it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. And, and you know, from sure folks who are subscribed to this YouTube uh, channel and watch this, they're, they're, you know, containers are not a brave new world. But you have to remember that there are a lot of folks out there that to them, it is brand new. Right. And I remember one of my first jobs was um, I was the developer uh, team lead that coordinated our deployment on actual physical servers in our own data center. And they were actually testing that we had to do to make sure certain DLLs would play along with certain other uh, DLLs, right? So we would actually have to um, uh, <laughs> we would actually have to do a lot of testing to make sure this application could live on this server uh, and coexist on the same machine as the other one. Virtualization right. took away a lot of those problems, but it created new problems. Right. And like you said, you know, you know, we had to bring the whole thing with us. So, you know, suddenly now we had our memory requirements and disk requirements went through the roof. And, you know, as that's when I left that world and and and, and marched off into the data side of things, uh, I didn't really have to think about virtualization anymore. But I remember thinking like, there's gotta be a better way. Right. And as I come back, this turns out containerization was the better way. You know, we've actually were, I would say about 10 years ago, we were thinking about this because we were building, um, I was working on building high performance computing infrastructure. So building out these big, massive grids of, of uh, servers, you know, we took all these one use servers, we stuffed a rack with as many as we could. So you'd have like 40 or so servers in a rack. And we wanted that super easy to deploy. And so how do we do that? Well, we, we would pixie boot the servers and we'd load the operating system. But we said, you know, really, there's nothing in the operating system that is specific to the application. So why can't that OS be ephemeral? And that's exactly what we did is we took Red Hat Linux at the time and we said, we're not going to install it to disk. We're just going to install it to RAM. <laughs> and it's just going <laughs> to live in memory. In fact, there were some people who went a step further and they actually, there was a project called um, Linux BIOS. I don't know if you remember that or heard of that. I've heard whispers of it, but but what exactly does that mean? And obviously so BIOS had, is... Instead of having a BIOS, you know, that 16-bit BIOS of the day, and now we finally got to a 64-bit UEFI, but we had, uh, you know, that 16-bit little BIOS, and that would boot and literally boot the machine, and the hardware would be up, and then we would load our operating system. So what if we just put stripped down version of Linux and, and the system when you powered it on immediately just turned on into Linux. Your boot time goes from, you know, several minutes to kind of several seconds. And Interesting. So boot straight in. So, you know, literally power on the box and get to a command line prompt almost instantly. So kind of this, this is what containers kind of makes me think about because, you know, you're, you're stripping out all that stuff that you were building that you really don't need that infrastructure stuff. And you just, really just want to get right to your application. 
um, and it's totally ephemeral. You, you store things someplace else, which is what we'll talk about. And, and not to date myself, but it's kind of the VCR model of computing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> VCR doesn't work, you just power it on, power it off again, and you're ready to roll, right? It's the same I'm trying to, I'm trying to think really what, uh, what the yeah. kids today will understand. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, I have to go find my rotary phone. So that's right. That's right. Um, that's funny. No, it, it, it is interesting how, how this technology has evolved, you know, from you would have actual physical servers to then you had virtualization and then now you have containerization. Right. Um, and we'll talk about kind of how storage works because if your OS is ephemeral, the right. only thing that really matters is your long-term storage. Correct. Um, and as a data scientist, right? Like I don't, you know, I don't, not that I don't care about where the data is stored. I care about the data. You know what right. I mean? And we've seen kind of the evolution of this. And I call this the Costco test, right? So how I came about the Costco test is the idea that um, a few years back, I was interviewing for a position and this one firm I was at, this, um, it was not a good fit. And I could kind of tell this at that point, but, uh, and this was like 2016 and he was so proud, so, so proud that he created a, a six terabyte database. Oh. Right now, kind of pulled some some threads on that. I found out that that this was the project that elevated him through the ranks of the company. So he was a little bit too attached to it, maybe. And I didn't really have the heart to tell him that um, in 2004, when this was this was built, getting six terabytes of storage and working with a database engine was a feat of engineering in and of itself. Right. However, by the time 2016 came along, six terabytes was no longer big data. Right. And, you know, they, they for, for various reasons, the rapport and the, the overall position, the interview didn't really go my way. And I'm okay <laughs> with that. But um, I ended up on the way home, my wife had asked me to stop at Costco. And what do you see in Costco? And they, they've since changed the layouts. But in this Costco, you walk in, they have the portable hard drives and the electronics there. And right on the front uh, of the desk was a six terabyte hard drive at the time. <laughs> and that kind of gave me an insight to what I call the Costco rule, right? Like if you can walk into not just Costco, but any kind of big box retailer and you see the amount of storage that, you know, that is, then that amount of storage is no longer big data, right? Right. It's kind of, it's a, it's a moving target. Now, what's interesting with the cloud and things like that, all you have to do now, uh, at least if you're dealing with the cloud, is to, to requisition more storage, is you just basically, you ask for more storage. Right. In some cases, they'll even automatically do that. You only see the bill at the end of the month or the quarter. Um, but I mean, the whole notion of data storage has also evolved too. Now, obviously for on-prem solutions, they're, they're, you, know, you still have to you know, requisition hardware and stuff like that. But it's my understanding that ODF and Ceph containerize that, for lack of a better term. Am I right about that, or am I wrong about that? No, you're totally right, right on board there. Um, we we want to provide you. You're you're right. You are the data scientist. You don't care what the storage is. You just care that it's there and for you, and you can and you can read and write to it. And then when you come back to it, it's still there, right? You, right. So you just care it's protected, it's performant. And it you can and it's um, ubiquitous. You can get to it from anywhere. 
actually you as you were talking there's one rule about storage i always somebody told me once and it's a really good thing to think about storage when we think about disks is binary and what do you mean that it's either new or full <laughs> and i look at all my hard drives and it's exactly true i have brand new disks and i have full disks there's nothing in between <laughs> because you get a drive and you just fill it and then you go okay i gotta get another one because nobody deletes anything anymore anyway well it's true storage is the cheapest it's ever been it's it's uh probably gonna get cheaper one of the few <laughs> things in this world that is <laughs> prices going down um but also uh, you know i noticed with my various cloud accounts you know it'll say hey you know you're at 80 percent of your storage right on your say g drive you know um and then when faced with the dilemma of well should i go and delete stuff or should i just pay like an extra two dollars per month um, yeah i'm sad to say that you know i think we're all becoming digital hoarders so to speak um i know i am but you're right i mean the 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 cost of my time to go through and kind of get rid of stuff balanced with the cheaper cost of storage to just add more leads me to just add more which i, right. I i'm sure that there's a um there's a lesson there maybe <laughs> to be learned but um and at some point that that i may go and purge a lot of stuff but you're right people tend not to delete things and when you're dealing with enterprises there's i'm sure there's regulatory things that need to be kept in mind how many years you keep it um and there's various cloud services kind of take that into advantages uh previous employer you know they had uh, cold storage where basically it cost nothing to store uh well not nothing but it was really cheap to store but if you never intended to access it unless there was some kind of investigation the cost to retrieve it was high was, right. was was very expensive so it was kind of that that interesting kind of um the the economics of storage at least from my simple data science mind uh is the idea of you buy equipment you you fill it up you buy more right that was kind of how it traditionally has been now it's a little more nuanced because you can kind of scale up and scale down um you can use archival features you could uh it, it, it it's become a lot more multi-dimensional than simply that, that binary aspect that you mentioned you know new drive or full drive right well i mean you just would have singular drives and you protect it by raid but if that failed you, you know you'd have to go and procure another drive and fill it in you know you're managing you're managing storage and you're a data scientist you don't want to be managing storage you want someone else to do that for you absolutely in fact i know a lot of people that you know you even say the word raid they have no idea what you're talking about, talking about you know un un unless they had done something else prior to switching to data science that i mean they they you know it's basically why can't i get to my jupyter notebook right <laughs> you know you you remind me the other thing you reminded me was uh, i i did watch the progression of storage getting cheaper in a very interesting way i had my ibm thinkpad and the ThinkPad had an interesting feature. You'd have an internal drive, and you knew, I discovered that you could pull out the CD-ROM that was removable and put another drive in there. So what I discovered I could do was I could be running with my internal drive, and when it got full, I wouldn't purge anything. I'd just go out and buy a new drive, and I'd copy all my data to that secondary drive, 
And then that would become my new drive and I move it into the middle of the system. And then I could, I was happy. I had a larger one. And I noticed that like every year I was able to at least double my capacity by buying a new drive at the same price. I bought my, my drive last year. So merrily going along on new egg, sorry, shameless plug, but <laughs> buying larger hard drives every year and just swapping them through my system just continuously. And I, and actually the laptop would change too. Um, I would just, you know, every three years, IBM would send me a new laptop that would just go away, but I'd keep the hard drive and I just swap in the new hard drive. And, and that was the beauty of running Linux too. Cause I didn't really care. I was, I wasn't running windows and I had to worry about all the drivers. I was just running Linux. So I would just like swap the drive, boom, Linux would boot up. I'd be happy and running again. And they just kept on doing it. Um, I won't say what version I was running. <laughs> well, it's funny. You mentioned, you mentioned the driver replication would be an issue, yeah. which I think and I hadn't thought about driver, like saving the driver files, which were precious once you figured it out. Right. It hasn't, hasn't really been a problem for at least 10 years, maybe, maybe longer. I would say windows seven is about the last time I had to think about that. So, so for you kids out there, you really don't know how good you have it now. Oh, well, there was a thing, a technique that was written up in Red Hat. You know, how did you take your installer CD of Red Hat, mm -hmm. and unroll it, inject your new drivers, rebuild it, and then and then hand it out to somebody so it'd have all the drivers. And, and that was something you had to do uh, yep. in the early days was essentially unpack the bootloader, the boot section of the uh, of this of the code you know, of, the, of the Linux kernel rebuild the kernel to have all the drivers you need in it and then repack that cd-rom reboot and then you know boot from that so that you would have the drivers you need wow so that was but, challenging and painful. I, even, even just saying burning a cd yeah. a huge, <laughs> so it's funny i remember my son was born in 09 right and if this is maybe four years ago we we um somebody had like a uh, um like a wedding and they wanted a particular song to be played and for some reason where the, the venue didn't have like an mp3 jack or anything like that so they said hey could you know could you burn a cd for me of this song and i was like sure and then my son who was a bit younger at the time was like like oh cool we're gonna burn a cd like i have to see this <laughs> you know and you know the other thing he said first thing he said actually was what's a cd which what's that, a CD? that kind of that was a, 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 a that punch was a to the gut. uh but then he was very disappointed when there was in fact no visible burning involved oh when it was just we put the thing in there and and now burning a cd is pretty well, if it's done at all right like it was became pretty anticlimactic you drag the file over and you hit go right i remember when it was a was a nightmare to get the driver going and it, it was um it was uh we should do is just show just to technology reminiscence, right? <laughs> um, but we're here today to talk about kind of the evolution of storage. And um, so, 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 so tell me more about the, what, what ODF and Ceph is and what the relationship between Ceph and ODF is. So Ceph is where we, we, we should say, we should start with Ceph because Ceph um, at its heart was the ability is, is a storage, um, file system that was created um, to solve scalability issues, right? Um, we were in, you know, we, I talked about HPC, big data, something you're doing and 
we need to write lots of data. We need it to be highly available. Uh, we want it to be cheap, right? There are things you talk about, you know, as I always talk about, you can, you can be cheap, you can be reliant, and you can be fast. You can only get two, <laughs> right? They right. Always, they always say that. You cannot have two. that triangle. Yeah. Yeah. Pick that's the triangle. Two. Pick two because you can't have all three. Well, in CEPHs, we want to have all three. We want we want it to be cheap, so we want to build it on commodity hardware, right? We don't want to have to use specialized uh, hardware that that to get what we need because that's expensive. Um, so we really want off-the-shelf cheap hardware. We talked about these cheap hard drives you can buy. We want it to be fast. Um, so in storage, um, of course, we're at SSDs now. But before we had SSDs, you know, we, we pretty much were living on spinning drives, and those were th always throttled by the transfer rate because you know you had to wait for the literally wait for the head to move around, right? And then you could read your data. And then if you missed, you know, you had to read again and you had to wait for it to come around again. So that rotational latency was a, was a challenge. So how do we solve that? Well, if we have a lot of drives added together, we're aggregating the performance because we can spray our data across multiple drives and we can get performance. So we know that spreading out across lots of drives gives us more performance has been one of the traditional uh, tenets of storage is, you know, parallelism is easy to get and take advantage of it. So we want that. And we want high reliability. And we know drives, especially if they rotated at that time, had a high chance of failing because they were physically moving. So anything that moves is wears out, as I can attest to you from running every day. <laughs> <laughs> Things wear out. <laughs> yeah. So and and then that's a problem so you have to perform maintenance well in my case stretching but um and make sure that you feel better so the same thing with discs you know so again as you get lots of drives out there you got to worry about maintenance so how do we have to worry about well i don't want to worry that a drive fails i just want to keep running so steph's was uh the attempt to build out a, a file system that's that would scale out perform and was cheap, right? So that's that's kind of the thought behind that. So and, so here's a question that I know my data scientist friends would want me to ask. How does that relate to Hadoop file system or HDFS? Like was that was that developed in parallel? Did that pre was one a precursor to the other? Or is it is that a not even a good question to ask? No, I, I think the Hadoop model may have come first. And Hadoop, remember, wasn't originally a POSIX file system. It was its own. Um, it was its own um, access. It was a Hadoop layer, um, but the concept there was similar. Um, what did you have for storage at the time? You had, you had individual hard drives going in servers, or you had SANs. SANs were cool because you could build these expensive arrays or buy these expensive arrays to protect your data. Um, but they were also represented that something that the um data scientists like you found out very quickly it was a bottleneck mm -hmm. i've because you know if you're a data scientist and you're doing doing lots of compute you're using hundreds of servers right you think you're thinking hundreds or thinking thousands if you're really you know in a big organization and you can't have if i spread a workload across hundreds of servers all those servers talking to the same storage array at the same time the thing is just going to give up you're going to 
saturate your your sand or you're going to saturate your storage array but you will hit the limits of that very quickly and so from a data scientist point of view um when you're doing high performance computing local disks actually are faster right because i guarantee to get the bandwidth to that little local drive um and i've had a bunch of local drive and hey this is great i'm doing better than my sand because i'm just direct attached to these drives so what if i just spray my direct i just fill all my servers with disk and they just spray them with disk you know spray them with data across all of them well then i got to worry about what happens if i if something fails well just make another copy of the data right so let's not run rate algorithms are bad because um traditionally a rate algorithm when when you um, you're writing data, 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 and then parity, and if a drive fails, oh my God, my drive failed. So now the system basically says, okay, I'm going to read data, 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 parity. I'm missing that data, so now I compute the data that was lost. Okay, that's expensive because now I'm spending my time, and the performance now goes to hell. So a, a drive loss is just horrible thing. If I'm just spraying my data across all the disks. And I have multiple copies, then if one of the copies fails and goes offline, okay, uh, I just in the background just bring it back to full parity again by just rewriting the data that was lost. It also saves me this concept of, and the D-Ray guys finally figured this out, is that only need to recover data, you know, and in, in the old-fashioned drive ray drives. We didn't know where the data was, so we just had to rebuild everything that was on the drive. So if you had a, a, a large hard drive and it failed in a RAID set, you had to rebuild the entire drive. That's really painful. While if I'm I've just, known people who had to do that and yeah, uh, just the most awful thing in the world. Yeah. And yeah, RAID is just, you know, so if we're just spraying our data across um multiple servers with multiple drives so then i'm just got multiple copies again that solves that problem and then performance you know um i'm my data is all sprayed out i just read it from the closest place right so wherever the my data is uh, i read it from the closest location so again that's kind of the concept in in uh in in saps was to build out a uh a posix file system one of the things they wanted to do they actually wanted to do several things but one of the things was to build out a file system that was spread out across lots of servers so the performance was really good but they also wanted to service the fact that um there's other things other ways of reading data besides posix so they also wanted to provide object storage so same thing they provided object store and they also wanted to be just have block storage because there are applications or things that just need block storage. And so instead of giving somebody a hard drive, we want to give them a, a virtual hard drive and let them use that as their block storage. So the CEPHS was built to, to solve that. It was actually a government project. I don't know if you knew that. Too. No, I did not know that. Interesting. It was funded by, I believe it was a, um, I don't know what section, but it was a, it was a federally funded project uh, for building um, for storage. Uh, so that was, they felt that was needed. And so I think it was built at one of the labs on the West Coast. It to be East Coast oriented here, but uh, <laughs> certainly, uh, I think one of the big labs out on the West Coast was where it kind of started. And then there was um, uh, at, at some point a company that actually was selling CEPs that I think Red Hat acquired. So now you're stretching my memory of. Oh, um, interesting. This is all yeah. history I didn't know about. Uh, yeah. You know, I knew it was an open source project at one point and then 
um, you know, became. So, so what is the relationship then of Ceph and ODAP? Is so, yeah. So now we're sorry from all that. You know, the container resolution revolution is occurring, and we need storage for containers. Um, and certainly, the model, the model that my understanding is that the model that we went down was uh, a lot of it was based on object stores, right? Um, I wanted my my application. This is the whole thing where they talk about cattle versus pets. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm running code. You know, I just want my code to be ephemeral, meaning there's no state in my code. My state is elsewhere. So I save state to my storage, but my code is just my code. That simplifies things a lot. And that way, if my application fails, just like cattle, you shoot it and you restart it. Right. The same kind of concept there. And you're you're not attached to it, right? It's not like a you're not attached. You don't to give it, it right. a name. I remember, you know, naming conventions for servers at one point were a big deal. Now I don't think anyone really cares. Like it's just. <laughs> I always liked naming servers. Yeah, I guess I was a real pets kind of guy because I that was one of my thrills. Mm -hmm. Sure, you had how much life I had was coming up with interesting names. Of course, you know, as as being in the computer group, you know. Frodo was always a common name that mm -hmm. always wound up as a server. You always had a Frodo, uh, a Gandalf. <laughs> yeah, well, there was always like, different universities had different. Uh, so my university, when they built their mainframe and their eventually their their Vax systems out, they named them after characters from Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, that is so cool! So like it was like there was Murray, there was Rhoda, there was. Um, Ted, Ted Baxter. Uh, there was a Ted, uh, and there was a bunch of things. So, but but other Ted schools Rams. had different systems. Like it was kind of cool. You know, there was the Star Trek ones. There was the Star Wars ones. There was um, might have been one of the Ivy Leagues had you know named after crayon colors in the '64 box. Or something. Oh, so 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 it was very cute, like how that is, and and that's something that you know it's not really a thing anymore. You know um but yes I, I i enjoyed that that too kind of e even just discovering like i i remember um i remember it was my university i i was like murray wrote a ted i'm like I've heard these names before you know like <laughs> like used in like what's the common theme here yeah so that show has uh, and you got me don't have me talk about that that show <laughs> has such great legs from the point of view of it i think it's timeless even mm -hmm. though it's probably a little dated i don't th i think it i've watched those shows i've had my children watch those shows and it just carries you know and it's like it's a timeless show yeah you the know, writing was always... very not well done like yeah it's, it's a classic for a reason it's a classic i tried to show my kids laugh in um a few years ago and my wife and i sat down and we said this was the funniest show of our time we turned on old laughing and it just didn't it just didn't <laughs> <laughs> it really didn't carry forward it was just like okay we skipped that one that didn't work. <laughs> but yeah mary Moore was timeless what a great show murray uh what was it chuckles the clown best episode ever Oh yeah, I have to check it out. That now, the interesting thing is now with the cloud, or you know, you can stream it. I don't know who has it. I don't know if it's on, but I mean, the fact that you know you can watch anything at any time is, I think, is a indirect byproduct of how cheap storage and computers become and how commoditized it has. 
Right. So, anything is anything is available at any time. I just think about how anything I think about, I can just search for and find. Right. Just amazing um, how you can just find and and you know, like if you're interested in genealogical records, you know, I want to find out. I just recently was just like Google searching about my grandfather and literally found records, you know, where he lived, you know, and uh, the candy store he operated. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, the candy store. So I found the records of the candy store. And, you know, and then because of like Google Maps, I have an old picture of the candy store from 1940. And then I can go to that same location today and look at, well, it's a bodega now. <laughs> right, right. Wow. Cool. There's there's the bodega where my grandfather's candy store used to exist. It was a candy store in 1940, and now it's you know 2000 some odd, and it's been a bodega. So kind of cool. You know, <laughs> all this online. So with this storage out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's. I mean people talk about networks and things like that, but but really kind of the backbone of how we experience the internet today. It's all built on storage. I mean, right. every time, even even if you have an S3 bucket, right? You know, somewhere in some data center, somewhere, uh, you know, something's spinning up unless it's SSD. But there's right. some there's some LED light that's flickering, you know, or something's so you happening. Go, you go online to any online store and you you look at a product, and we won't talk about all the things they're capturing about you, but you look at. That <laughs> And you put it in your shopping cart and you think maybe I'll get it, but maybe not right now. And, and then you leave and you close your laptop and you go do something else. And maybe the next day you open up your laptop and you navigate back to that same website and there's your shopping cart and it still has that same product in it. Well, do you think you're connecting to the same server you were connecting to, you know, three days ago or a week ago? No. And are you connecting even to the same process that you were running? No. You, and you may not even be in the same data center, but the storage remembers you. That storage is ubiquitous. It's sprayed out across the country. There's copies of it in multiple data centers. And so no matter where you came back to and you just reconnect to that Amazon cart or you know, you know, whatever cart you're in, um, Wayfair, there's your product because the storage kept it and you're probably connected to it. Like you said, an, an, a different process, a different server, and probably a different data center. But the storage remembered that you put that in the cart. And of course, you got 50 emails along the way saying, hey, did you leave something in your cart? Why don't you go buy it? <laughs> Take the final step to buy that. Yeah, I, I, I've done that with a couple of online courses where like, you know, uh, I'll put it in the cart and then I get distracted on my phone. Right. And then, then I come back to my laptop and then it's like, it's in my cart there. And, you know, I'll get a couple of emails in between like, Hey, pick up where you left off. Wait, but sorry. you're right. I mean, it's, it, 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 and also too, there's all new paradigms, right? You, you, you know, I'm sure you have heard of this and our, our, our viewers have heard of this too, you know, serverless, right? Serverless would not exist. Right. I'd be careful because somebody will say, well, actually, it wouldn't. But I mean, it's hard to imagine serverless existing in a world without kind of all the gadgets and stuff we have today uh, right. and the architectures we have today, right? Because it wouldn't make sense. Like serverless, well, even just the term serverless just sounds like an oxymoron, right? How could right. you do this without a server? Well, it's not really about that. It's about everything but your code being ephemeral, where right. your code runs, how it runs, what it does. 
that's ephemeral, but the actual kind of what triggers it and what executes it. And that's, that, that is, I think, opened up all sorts of new architectures and new ways of thinking for developers. So this sort of technology, you know, most data scientists were content to live in our data science world and we're all excited about chat GPT and, and all the transformers and stuff like that. But, but uh, could we have built these types of structures without this type of underpinning? I mean, maybe, but I think it'd be a lot harder. Right. You know, and, and, and this is kind of the unsung, you know, the other unsung hero of kind of the innovations in AI or the data engineers. You'll hear, you know, this model had, you know, 15 billion input parameters, right? Well, how was that trained? Like how, just, just the, 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 the sheer effort that would go into, at least if you're doing this on-prem or doing it kind of the old fashioned way, uh, would have been just impractical, like the cost right. alone. Now it's just a matter of, you know, you pick a cloud vendor and you, you spin stuff up and you spin stuff down and you get a bill, right? So right. you don't have to acquire the hardware. Once upon a time, I worked in Silicon Alley at a major uh, retailer who was trying to build a book selling website. I think we can all figure out who they are. Right. Um, but, um, um, and, you know, before we sold the first book, right? We had dropped millions of dollars into hardware, the data center, the, just just the cabling, like just a lot of money went into it before the first book was sold. Now, the right. true power of the cloud is if I wanted to start a bookstore today, whether or not it's a good idea, let's just suspend, suspend our disbelief, right? Uh, whether or not that's a good idea, I could probably do it today on a credit card. Right. You know what I mean? Because I would have that elastic nature of the cloud. And I think right. people, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, kind of the underpinning of all these major hyperscalers that are out there, it's containerization, whether that's containerization of compute or storage, right? The fact that we don't have to think about it, I think speaks how well products like Ceph and ODF, you know, not saying that any one particular uses that, they, they, they have some kind of containerized uh, flavor of storage, right? But but we wouldn't be able to just, you know, uh, using my, uh, you know, Google Drive example, right? Just here, give us two bucks extra a month. We'll give you more cars. <laughs> right, right. You know what? But, you know, but you bring up the really good point. If you were to open that bookstore, um, mm -hmm. you're in the book business, right? Right. You're, or you're in the, or you're in the, you know, information business, but you're in a business. You're not in the computer business. Right? Yes. And you don't want to be basically an IT organization that's that happens to be selling books well unfortunately there is a or there is a model like that out there there isn't but skipping them you know you're in the you're in the that business of selling selling in uh, selling books and and you don't want to be in the in the business of um of uh, maintaining a computer center but and i won't argue but i think it isn't isn't a bad idea you know selling books book books are doing great by the way <laughs> despite all the technology people are still reading and they're reading a lot so it, the books aren't going away maybe the form you get them in although i think a lot of people still cherish holding a physical book in their hand and turning the page there's something super satisfying about that <laughs> it is a very tactile experience and you know, there have been cases when I'll bar, I'll start with the ebook, but I want to have it in print. Right now, part of it is I don't get notifications. 
right. and get distracted as much on an actual paper book. Whereas with with yeah, an e-reader, you might get distracted. Right. With an e-reader, you'll get distracted. You know, whether especially if it's on your phone or your existing device, where you'll get notifications. But with an actual paper book, it's very you don't get bothered i'm you know um so you're right i mean like i I was just saying that whether or not it's a good idea to go up against a particular particularly one giant uh but but i mean you know not to discourage any potential booksellers out there uh but uh it's it the calculus has changed in terms of how one would start a business now i mean you could theoretically have a business idea you know at breakfast have a rough proof of concept website by lunch and potentially potentially in an extreme case have your first sale by dinner like right. it's not it's not impossible right the, the barrier to that isn't the technology anymore the barrier to that is how well you can get your message out and acquire customers it's yeah. almost like frictionless computing yeah i mean you would almost argue that uh, um again without using a corporate name but a ride <laughs> service right is a technology company because they're coordinating the cars to pick you up and drop you off and paying for the drivers and and collecting your fees and that's all about the technology but they happen to be providing a car service that was kind of revolutionized you know transportation in a way because um you don't have to well if you're a new yorker like i am you know you don't stand on a street corner and try to hail a cab in the rain you just like go to your phone and go get me a cab um that's cool um but really it's about the technology um, yeah absolutely coordinating it and watching the car yeah being impatient you know watching the car arrive and <laughs> getting was, into the wrong one <laughs> i i was recently in new york city and um the for whatever reason, like where the GPS signal will triangulate you may not be exactly from the same store. So you kind of have to figure out where's the car going. But again, that's a new problem, right? Because I remember having the hail cabs too. And you had a there's a certain skill to it. And you know, if you or there's a skill to it. And and then it's a it was a cash business. Yep. So you had to have cash to pay the fare and and enough cash. You know, I was always calculating in my head how much do i need to get where i'm going and how do i make change i don't want to make change so will the fare wind up so that i can give the guy uh, a certain number of bills with a that is a decent tip <laughs> yep for the for the right and he doesn't have to make change and give it back to me because i was i did not want to be sitting there watching him give me change i wanted to hand him n number of bills and be and get out and get to my destination right so you know all those calculations are no longer in my head anymore because it's just click the phone and it's and it's done <laughs> hey now you have cognitive surplus to think about uh storage right <laughs> so let's let's look let's a get into bit. a demo yeah so so real uh mm-hmm. let me just say so when we talked about Ceph's, so Ceph, you know okay solving those problems being able to provide oh i gotta share my screen i'm mm-hmm. sorry oops let me do that and i will do my whole screen to make it easier and i will switch over so share, wait, I have to pick it and share. There we go. Um, so I'm in OpenShift. So um, we talk about Ceph's being something that solved a lot of problems, being able to provide storage cheaply, be able to provide scale for performance and be very reliant. And one of the things that Ceph's did was 
over time become containerized. So instead of physically installing binaries in the you know and and configuring the servers, we just packaged them up, packaged up the storage storage code, you know, the management of the storage and all that into containers, so that it it also was easy to install. And because it was containerized, it was something we could install in OpenShift because OpenShift needs storage. Because um, when we talk about storage in OpenShift, and then, by the way, you know, I'm I'm in OpenShift here, and I do have a storage section, and I have uh, when we talk about storage in OpenShift, um, we want something. We we have storage that either they talk about storage that is either container ready or container um, native. So container ready means that the storage is, exists outside of the container system and that I have some type of linkage to get to that storage. So if I go into my storage classes here, I'll, I have a number of storage classes defined, but I installed OpenShift here on, on, um, on VMware. So I, you know, it's a virtualized platform that I'm sitting on top of. And that's actually an interesting use case because here I'm running virtualization to run my containerized platforms because um, from a point of view of test and dev, that's a good thing because I can just spin up an OpenShift cluster really quick, uh, do my testing and then get rid of it. Um, but then if I go into production, I might just go straight to the bare metal and install OpenShift right on bare metal and, and eliminate that middle layer. But in the meantime, it comes with some storage and this is kind of container ready storage because it exists outside of OpenShift. So there's this class here and there's a driver, it's called thin and it will essentially create a volume for me. If I say I want a persistent volume claim on the VMware um, data store that my environment is living on. And I could have a storage array from somebody and that storage array, again, it will exist outside and I will go and grab storage off of it. Um, and we essentially then have to do a mapping of that storage, physical storage to the physical server running and then present that up into the containers. Uh, here, I also happen to have um, um, Ceph's installed. Now Ceph's is the containerized uh, native version um, I mean, that's F, excuse me, ODF. ODF, OpenShift Data Foundation, uh, is Ceph's running fully containerized inside OpenShift. And so that's been stored and said, so you can see here, we add here this little part here that says o Data Foundation. And this is kind of my summary screen within um, OpenShift that is telling me a, a little bit about my storage. Um, I see an overview screen and I can see that I have uh, healthy because the green check marks. I have a healthy storage system. I'm not using very much of it. I just installed again. This new or full. This is new. <laughs> I just created it recently, but I can see my capacity, and I have a performance screen here uh, showing you know IOPS latency and throughput. So I get a little bit of summary of what's going on in my environment, and I have a little. Um, so if there I mean, was a glitch or a bottleneck, you would be able to narrow it down pretty quickly. I would be able to sit and yes, exactly. And there are other things here I can see that I built. Uh, I, I can have multiple storage systems running um, and I've got one here. I could create new ones. Uh, I have um, a little bit about, you know, the what's behind here. Um, 
and um, I actually actually have some namespaces defined, but let's just go back and um, I have my storage system here. Now, what that provides me is the ability to create persistent volumes. And here is like a list of all my persistent volumes, but really an application makes a claim, a, P, a persistent volume claim. We'll go to all projects. And what that means is I request storage and then I fulfill that storage by going, the system fulfills that by going out and creating a volume and then fulfilling that claim. So for every claim here is a claim called files. I actually have a little, let's just go down to an application, a little file browser application I built. And files uh, is the um, is the volume that I, uh, persistent volume claim I requested. And then the volume got built here uh, and that's the persistent, and that's the volume that actually is fulfilling that claim. And then over here, I can see that it's existing on the file system, the CephFS file system, and that's the storage class that's providing that storage here. I have a second one here, which actually I did a snapshot. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing here the uh, uh, I did a restore uh, of a snapshot. So I you can see here I got a second copy of this volume because I asked for uh, I did a I did a backup and then a restore so I can see the second copy I created but that's my little application here but you know so when I go back to storage classes I can see the different types of of storage I can request so um, here is a file system so here if I request this as a as a storage type I will get a file system presented to me here is RBD, and that's a block devices. And here are my um, buckets, or my um, if I wanted to do a um, uh, object store, I can request a object bucket. So those are the um, storage types I can request here. They all exist um, in in fully containerized running in uh, in the system. So this is kind of cool. Um, what we've done, I should mention, is you know to bring it back to this new year, is that we've um, provided ODF as, as through something we're providing it through something we're calling uh, Fusion, and Fusion has been for the past year IBM's offering to build a foundation around um, uh, uh, OpenShift to be able to basically provide OpenShift and this, everything OpenShift would need from a point of view of data services. So I've actually installed Fusion. Uh, and if I go over to my operators. So it, it's installed as an operator on, on side of OpenShift. So there's a really correct. good tie-in between uh, the two. That's interesting. Right. And so if I go down to um, IBM Spectrum Fusion namespace, I see there's an operator here. And if I click on that operator, um, I can see the things it provides, um, but essentially I have a built a fusion storage system uh, on OpenShift. And what does that that mean? I provided some serve. I'm providing some services. What am I providing? Well, um, you can see the boxes I've checked here. I'm providing backup and restore, which the marketing folks would call data protection, <laughs> but it's backup and restore to you and me. <laughs> and I'm providing OpenShift Data Foundation. That's my foundation for storage. And I have a third 
storage class here called the global data platform. So um, believe it or not, IBM had software defined storage of its own before Ceph. Um, in the early days, it was called GPFS. Um, and GPFS um, was also designed to be a file system that was highly performant. It was a global parallel file system. That's what it stands for, GPFS. And it, it served a really good purpose and still does as being a very high performance file system technology. Uh, so is that is it globally distributed for uh, speed or um, redundancy? Like if a natural disaster took out one particular data center, would it would it replicate it automatically, or is that something completely different? No, it does. It does do that. Um, it, it it replicates. It, it can replicate um, across data centers. Uh, it is can be very highly reliable within a data center. Um, it started, you know, in that more traditional vein of um, file system, you know, of, of um, uh, file system technology. It was, it was built originally with the idea of SAN in mind, where you would have multiple servers talking to the same set of drives. That way, you know, a server would fail, your data would still be available. But it really went after solving the parallel access problem, which meaning if I have lots of servers who all want to talk to the same set of data well we need locking <laughs> and locking uh, yeah so that we're not over it's getting so it's getting complicated as soon as you say blocking and locking locking, and... locking. i'm sorry i meant locking locking you know, lock. okay we want locks we want to basically be able to lock the data that i'm if i'm doing a write, i want to make sure nobody else is doing a write at the exact same time otherwise right. that would be bad it's kind of easy to do when you have an operating system in one file system running on a server and everybody so i've got applications talking it that's within the file system but what if that file system spread out across multiple servers it gets a little bit more complex there and so that's where we start getting into this whole to say the I, least yeah how do i solve <laughs> so, that problem so i mean is this an eventual consistency model is this last one wins or are there weighted kind of uh it's actually um it's a, it's a, it's a actually, well, so it's IBM. So it, it was actually a token pat. It's a token passing concept where, um, you know, you're passing a token and whoever owns the to hold, holding that token can do rights. If you're not holding it, it's kind of like pass the baton, you know, like a speaking stick. If you're not or a token ring for the kids out there who don't yeah. know what we're talking about. Um, there's, there's actually a pretty good Wikipedia article on it. So yeah so that what's important about that is that it you know it, it was you know you're you're managing that and and the advantage of being a ring technology is that i don't have a centralized locking manager and one of the problems with traditional clustered file systems were that you would have a lock manager and that guy owned the locks and then would hand them out to the servers who wanted to do the rights and that one became a single point of failure and it also became a bottleneck so that's kind of like a it scales so much and then it stops scaling because you hit that bottleneck um plus it's a single point of failure that lock master goes down you've got problems so you have to have redundant lock masters but if you have a distributed locking mechanism where everybody is participating then if one guy fails we're not so worried uh, because we have another you know we have everybody else owning a copy of the database. And so we continue. 
Um, so that, yeah, so scale, and we won't get into the, all of the things about GPFS, which now, which became spectrum scale. Um, they renamed it, but now it's, um, but, that's but if still- anyone wants us to do a deeper dive into those topics, let us know in the comments below. Right. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, I could geek out on this for hours, but I do you know. Yeah, you can. <laughs> and we we chatted yesterday, and we we geeked out pretty hard with some some old uh, old tech stories. So, so that was, and and scale was container ready, and now is moved into the container native world, meaning that it. Uh, you can run spectrum scale in containers on your OpenShift platform. So um, if you wanted to do that, you can, um, that it's, you're pretty much running the, just the client code, meaning you're, you're, um, and you have some type of spectrum scale um, infrastructure outside that you're connecting to. So if you're running scale um, and you want to plug into that, we give you that capability here. Um, but if you want to run 100% container native and everything is inside of OpenShift, you would typically migrate to doing ODF um, because that's a fully 100% container native solution here. And what's nice about this is that I could be running this here in my uh, on, on my premise. I could be running it in the cloud. Uh, I can be running in some kind of mix, but I'll have the same services available to me, whether wherever I'm decide to build this out. So that's really nice. So where can customers or people watching this find out more? Like how do they how do they get started with this? Like what's the what's the best way to get started? Um, that's that's really good. Uh, well, I mean, if you're running OpenShift or or um, um, you can certainly just uh, go to the operator hub um, and and look for the, you know, ODF um, operator and, and then deploy that. Um, don't ask me about how that all gets licensed right now, but I just, you know, that is available to you. Now, certainly you can go to, um, still go to the Red Hat website and, and read about it. And you can go to the IBM website and, and read more about it or these channels, but, um, uh, it's available to you as a native part of OpenShift. Um, Fusion um, is kind of a, as the name the name um, implies, is a, a collect the Fusion or a collection of these services all brought together under one umbrella. So we're essentially just kind of wrappering that um, for you and making the installation easier, um, simplifying the install and simplifying the management a little bit. So. We have this Spectrum Fusion um, operator here. If I install it, which I have, I come back to my installed operators. And um, I, as I mentioned before, I get these services as, as a collection. So it's kind of like a one-stop shopping kind of scenario. And there, it has its own GUI. So when you, after you install it, you go up to the dots here and you can see Spectrum Fusion listed out. Uh, I already opened that up so I can see my um, Fusion dashboard here um this is the version that was released uh last quarter uh there'll be another one coming out this quarter so we're up trying to do an update every quarter um and there's an introduction here and then you can see um the services that are provided i have my backup and restore i installed that 
I have ODF, I install that. In fact, I installed ODF first, and then I let Fusion discover that ODF was installed. It, it installed and said, oh, you already did that. Okay, great, I'll just mark that running. And then I have my pane of glass here within Fusion that just gives me an overview of my data foundation environment, a simpler um, overview of, of what I'm doing as far as ODF. You know, I'm distributed across three nodes. I have three storage nodes uh, that are running and it just gives me my utilization and tells me that my environment is healthy. It's kind of simple, but the idea is I'm just trying to simplify um, my information here. I just wanted to let you know that you have it installed and what and what you're using so far. Well, this so, is awesome. This is cool. I, I definitely, uh, I'll definitely uh, ping you because I have many, many questions. And if you have any questions, let us know in the chat. Um, and if you want us to, to kind of dive into any particular part of this, let us know. And uh, of course, be sure to like, share and subscribe. I uh, want to thank uh, Josh for coming on and uh, really looking forward to, to get my, my hands dirty in the storage side of things, kind of going outside of the well-worn path of the data scientist and taking a look under the, uh, under the covers. Okay, this was great. I enjoyed this and maybe in future we can kind of dive down into like uh uses you know where where we would use it how an app oh, yeah use it and kind of kind of explore some of the features and you know get into kind of um things you can do with it so there's some fun features that um that you can kind of dig out and 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 use them for your application so we can we can do that kind of stuff awesome all right thanks for joining and thanks for watching thanks for listening to data driven we know you're busy and we appreciate you listening to our podcast. But we have a favor to ask. Please rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to us. Of course, you have subscribed to us, haven't you? Having high ratings and reviews helps us improve the quality of our show and rank us more favorably with the search algorithms. That means more people listen to us, spreading the joy. And... Can't the world use a little more joy these days? Now, go do your part to make the world just a little better and be sure to rate and review the show.